Hello, my name is Joshua. Um, I'm a fourth year engineering student studying Masters in Software Engineering, and today I'll be in the reading. Um, so we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 16. Um, this is printed in the middle of your handout, so if you want to follow along with me. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as he did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for forty years they saw what I did, this is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says... They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them do not go in because of their disobedience, God again, God again set a day, set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us, then, approach God's throne of grace with confidence, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our help need. What do you reckon has been the most dangerous place you've ever been or most dangerous situation? Something like that? Has that happened to you? A lion after you? Boy, that really would do the trick, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would get the heart racing. That would get almost anything happening, wouldn't it? I'd run for my life. Well, if lions don't do it for you, sharks might. A great white popping up beside you, just about to snaffle your legs. That would, uh, well, I don't know what I'd do then. I'd probably just lose it completely. I'd die of fright. If animals don't get you going, maybe it's mum. You're just scared stiff of the time she blows it with you. You might deserve it, but boy, that can be frightening, can't it? I think for me, watching this little bit of a video was enough for me. Uh, This is a guy called Alex Honnold. He recently free-climbed El Capitan in Yosemite, is that how you say it? Yosemite National Park in America. It's a thousand metres of pure vertical granite cliff. Free-climbing means he did it with no ropes. He did it with no help whatsoever. He, it was just him, his hands and his feet and this cliff. I mean, you just look down like that and my heart is, is in my mouth. I, I, I'd wet my pants, I think, if I wasn't wearing a nappy. That is enough to freak me out completely. One slip, just one slip, and about 10 seconds later, splat, the end of life. Well, the passage we're looking at today, the writer is freaking out like that. He's thinking about a situation, he's dealing with a situation that is as frightening for him as free-climbing El Capitan. And he wants it to be frightening like that for us as well. The situation is not a lion, it's not a shark, it's not free climbing. It's the possibility that his friends will stop listening to God. They have stopped listening because their hearts have become hard, because they've become stubborn. You see it there in verse 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And he's saying to his friends, if you hear God's voice today, don't harden your hearts. It's as bad as having a lion after you. He's talking about a form of deafness which isn't not being able to hear, but refusing to hear. About a hard heart, not inactive ears. And so the warning is, if you hear God speaking, and he thinks they probably will, then don't, whatever you do, don't harden your hearts. See to it that you you don't put yourself in that really dangerous position. But hardening your heart, not listening, doesn't sound very dangerous, does it? And there's all sorts of things that happen every day that you don't listen to. Ads that just wash past you, whether they're on your phone or on TV. You you want them to just pass without you listening. When Dad criticises your choice in music, you don't want to listen. What does he know about music? When the lecture is boring and Facebook is, is more interesting, you don't want to listen, do you? And it seems like you can probably still pass your exams. What's so dangerous about not listening? Well, the writer quotes Psalm 95 about the danger of not listening to God. Uh, I'm going to start Psalm 95 a little bit before the author does in Hebrews. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, because he's our God. We're the people of his pasture, the flock of his keys. Come on, guys, let's get into the praise. 
Because God is worth it. But as he thinks about that, as he urges to do it, it's sort of like he changes gears. There's a crunch because he realises that without the heart of worship, bowing the knee, singing the songs is useless. In fact, it's dangerous. And so he changes gears. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. What's the heart of worship? Well, the heart of worship is listening to God. And that's true of almost any relationship, isn't it? The thing that annoys Rosemary, my wife, the most, I think, is when she says something to me and I ignore it. I don't hear it. Now, sometimes I blame her. I say she didn't speak loud enough. But sometimes it's just because I didn't. I was so absorbed in other stuff. <laughs> I listened, finally. Yeah, because when somebody doesn't listen to you, when they close their heart to you, how do you feel? You feel like you don't matter. You feel like you're worthless. You, you feel like the effort you put into speaking has been a waste of time because they don't care about you at all. Therefore, they haven't listened to your words. And the same with God. To not listen to God is the biggest insult, it's the biggest contempt for God that you could ever express. It doesn't matter, he says, how loudly you sing or how low you bow your knees, God is not happy with you, like he wasn't happy with Israel. And he recalls that for Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, the besetting problem that God has with them, especially in the early years, is their refusal to listen. They listen sometimes and they say, yes, yes, God, what, we say, what you say, we love it. And then they turn around and disobey it, ignore it. Now, to understand Psalm 95, we really need to backtrack a little bit to Genesis chapter 12, which kick-starts much of the, the story of the Old Testament, the story of Israel, where God makes some promises to a random wandering Aramean called Abraham. And his promises are pretty amazing. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. That is, from your offspring, your kids and their kids and their grandkids, I'm going to make a huge nation. And I'm going to have a special relationship with them. They'll be my people. I'll look after them. I'll be their God and uh, be, be behind them the whole time. And I'll give them a land, the land of Canaan, for them to possess forever. And through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. That is, this is God's plan to bring blessing to everybody, every nation, every tribe, every part of the world, through Abraham and his offspring. Well, fast forward 500 years, and we come to what Psalm 95 is talking about. Because Abraham's offspring did multiply, a bit like rabbits. There became lots of them, but they ended up in Egypt, oppressed in slavery, not a great nation, but just a great workforce for the Egyptians. And at that time, under Moses, God did something spectacular. He got them out. He redeemed them out of slavery. Remember, the, you might know the, the story of the, the ten plagues. He smites Egypt ten times till finally they let go of the Israelites. And he takes them down to the Red Sea and takes them across the Red Sea and drowns virtually the whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And they see all the bodies scattered on the shoreline and say, Finally, we're free. Nothing to fear anymore. Egypt is smashed. And he takes them to Mount Sinai and he says, Now I've made you my people. I've carried you on eagles' wings. You're mine. Let's be this like this forever. And they say, We're in it. And then he takes them to, the, to Kadesh, which is the edge of the promised land, the edge of the land of Canaan or Palestine. And when they get there, he says, I'm going to give you this land. I promised it to Abraham. Now is the time you're going to get it. I'll give it to you. 
And what happened was, Numbers 13, 14, they decide to send some spies into the land. The spies go in, they report back, God was right. This is a brilliant land, flowing with milk and honey. It's better than we ever imagined. Man, this, this will be terrific. But, but the land's already occupied. There's already people there. They're bigger than us. They're stronger. They've got fortified cities. We can never take the land. God, you must have just brought us out into this desert to kill us. That's what you're doing. You just wanted to destroy us. And Moses said to them, no, that can't be true. God's with us. Look what he did to the Egyptians. He will give us the land. So what do the people do? They say, let's kill Moses. We don't like what he's saying. He's saying God's words, but we're hard-hearted. We just want to kill him. And the story finishes this way. God swears an oath. I don't mean he uses foul language. I mean, he makes an oath. As surely as I live by my life and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who've now disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will enter will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one has treat, who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And that's Hebrews chapter 3, isn't it? Verse 11. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's what the psalm is, is quoting. This passage in Numbers 14. Those people who came out of Egypt, they will never enter the land into the rest that I promised them. And the writer in Hebrews says, well, who were those people who didn't enter the rest? Verse 16. Who were, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? See, these weren't freshers who knew nothing, anything about God. They were the Exodus generation. They'd seen what God did. They'd watched while the land went into darkness, while frogs went through the whole land, while the river turned into blood, while the firstborn of the Egyptians was, was killed overnight. And the land went up in wailing. They'd watched the Egyptian army drown in the Red Sea. They'd seen it all with their own eyes. And then when God says, I'll do it for you again, I'll give you the land, they refused to believe. Incredible. When he says go in, they rebelled. See, the problem isn't that God didn't speak clearly. They heard, they understood, but they refused to believe God. They refused to believe his promise that he would give them the land. Well, verse 17, he goes on. And with whom was God angry for 40 years? And was it not those who sinned, whose, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Yeah. That's right. So he, he talks about the Exodus generation. Those who came out of Egypt. What happened to them? Well, God said they won't enter my rest. So for 40 years, God forced them to wander around in the desert, in the wilderness, around Mount Sinai, that area, till every one of them had dropped dead of exhaustion or disease or old age. Not one of them lived. And the, the writer says their bodies are scattered across the desert. The corpses are all over the place. And verse 18, To whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They refused to enter God's rest. And God says, Well, if you refuse to enter, I promise you, you will never enter because of their unbelief. Now, the warning is pretty clear and almost impossible to miss, isn't it? The warning is, verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, 
that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Watch out that you don't harden your hearts like they did. Because the problem he's talking about is not the problem of ignorance. See, if you know nothing about Jesus, about Christianity, please investigate. This isn't addressed to you. Come and find out. We think Jesus is fantastic. We'd love to share more about him with you. But this is knowing, but suppressing it. Hearing, but having a hard heart. Refusing to listen, to believe. And that is what is so dangerous, says the writer. To close your heart to God speaking to you. Because that means no matter what God says to you, you're just going to push it away, aren't you? You're going to suppress it. Keep it underground, like like a child who just won't listen to their parents, no matter what they say, once they've closed their ears to their parents, even if their parents are telling them great stuff, they refuse to listen. The word he uses here is the word we get sclerosis from. It's sclerosis of the heart. This hardening, becoming like a rock, so that it's no longer soft and, and, and teachable. If when God speaks, I close my heart, I get more and more practiced at doing it. I get very good at doing it. Every time I close my heart, I get better at it. And so he says, change today. Today, if you hear his voice. Don't think I'll change tomorrow, because if you close your heart today, if your heart gets harder today, it'll be even harder tomorrow. I remember a guy who came along to see you for a couple of years. Uh, he'd met a couple of Christians who were involved in the CU through playing Ultimate Frisbee with them. He was really impressed with them. He thought they were great guys. And he invited himself to see you. He said, can I come with you? I, I've heard you're involved in the Christian Union, so can I come with you? And for two years, he came almost every week to our public meeting. Uh, he joined a small group and was heavily involved. And I remember having a conversation with him after about six months. Um, and I said, really quite great to have you. It's been terrific that you've been coming. Are things making sense for you? And he said, yeah, they actually make a lot of sense. This stuff about Jesus, who he is and and what he's done, I'm really finding fascinating. I said to him, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, I don't want to do anything at the moment. About six months later, I had the same conversation with him. I said, is it still making sense? He said, yes, making more and more sense. The more I listen to it, the more I hear. And the more I see of my Christian friends, the more I, I really appreciate it. I said, are you going to do anything? Are you going to put your trust in Jesus? And he said, no, I I just like the community. About six months later, I had a similar conversation with him. And he was still in the same place, just hearing, hearing, hearing. But his heart was hard. He wouldn't actually listen. He's now drifted off. He's graduated. As far as I know, he has nothing to do with Jesus. He had hardened his heart. And so the writer says to us, take personal responsibility, verse 12, see to it that you, that I don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But there's also a responsibility to one another, verse 13, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We can make a difference in each other's lives by encouraging, exhorting each other to keep listening, keep responding to God and his word lest we're hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because sin does deceive us. For the Israelites, they started to believe that Egypt would be a better place to be than the promised land. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, but they started to believe that. 
We can be deceived into thinking that a life of sin and evil, of self-indulgence and puny hopes of careers or whatever it might, is somehow better than what God is offering us. We're all vulnerable to being deceived, including me. And so he says, encourage one another every day. You see your brother or sister starting to get a hard heart, stopping listening. You, you see a sister or a brother who, who started to be allured away by the attraction of sinfulness and deceived by it, then say something to them. Don't just let it happen. Don't think, well, it's their life, not mine. No, love each other enough to say something. Because we're all vulnerable. It can happen to me, it can happen to you. And just once a week is not enough. He says, do it daily. Because the trouble is, if we start heading in that direction, it becomes a rut that's hard to get out of. So every day, till Christ returns, spur each other on, look out for each other, speak up. Now, warnings like that can startle us awake. They can fill us with fear, and that's helpful. But the writer wants, us, wants to give us some positive motivation as well, not just the fear. And that's really what he does in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now, the the warning is still there in chapter 4, 1 to 11. But what he points out is, in the warning, there's a hidden promise. Let me try and illustrate. Imagine I say to you, listen, if you've got no money, you just can't get any food from Subway. Okay, there's a warning. No money, no food from Subway. But do you hear that in that warning, there's a promise? If you have got some money, Subway's real. And it has food. Might not be very good food, but it's got food. You see, in the very warning itself, there is a promise of something that is worth having. Something that you might miss out on, but is available to you. And that's what he points out. So in the psalm, today, if only you'd hear his voice, because if you don't, I declare they'll never enter my rest. So what if you do hear his voice? What if your heart is not hard, it's responsive and soft and you listen? Well, the implied promise is you get to enter the rest. Do you hear? And that's what chapter 4 is about. He sort of flips Psalm 95. The other side of the warning is this promise. Entering is a real possibility. But what rest is Psalm 95 talking about? Well, if you go back to Numbers 14... It's a way of describing life in the promised land. See, they had a life in Egypt that was terrible. It was hard labour. It wasn't rest at all. But life in the promised land, says God, is going to be like real rest. No longer slaves, but yeah, there'll be some work, but it'll be great work. You'll put a bit of work in and you know what? You'll be able to sit down under your grapevine, just plucking the grapes and popping them into your mouth and savouring them day after day after day. That's rest. And you'll be complete safety from any external threat, all your enemies. God will push them away so they no longer threaten you. You can be relaxed and secure. That's what God was promising in number 14 and when he, numbers 14. And when he said, "You will never enter my rest," he's saying, "You won't enjoy that life, that life in the land, in the land I've promised you." But Hebrews points out. Something about Psalm 95 that is critical. In verse 7 of chapter 4, he says that God again set a certain day, calling it today. He did this when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. 
He says a long time later, Joshua to David is about 400 years or so. 400 years later, David says, today, this day, in 1000 BC, not 1400 BC, but 1000 BC, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, because God swore you won't enter his rest. That must mean there's still a future rest. There's another rest. It's not just life in the land, because under David, Israel had life in the land. They had rest in the land. There must be a bigger rest that they can miss out on, a more significant one, a better one than just life in the land. And that's what he says in verses 8 and 9. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a future rest. A future rest that ends up being, as we see in this passage, the age to come. You could call it heaven, you could call it a new creation. It's what God has promised he will bring about as the consummation of his rescue effort. But the writer also points out another aspect of Psalm 95. He doesn't just say, oh, you won't enter rest. He says, you won't enter my rest. It's not just any rest. It's not just going to Bali. This is God's rest. Which takes us back to when did God's rest start? Well, do you know Genesis chapter 2? That's when it started. Remember, God creates the world in those six days. Everything in it, brilliant. Everything in its right place. He looks and says, everything's good. And then what does he do? He puts his feet up. Seventh day, he rests. He finished the work, and so he rested. Now, it's not a rest out of exhaustion. Creating didn't exhaust God. It's the rest of enjoyment, of enjoying everything he's created, to be able to survey it and appreciate it and rejoice in it. That's the rest. But how long did it go for? Did it go for 24 hours? Now, if you know the passage, you'll know it doesn't say... And there was evening and morning a seventh day. And then God got up and started recreating on the eighth day. No, no. His rest continues through today. God's rest is his own relaxation, his own enjoyment. It's still going. And that's what he's talking about in verses 3 following of chapter 4. Now we who have believed enter that rest. As God said, I declare in my oath, they won't enter my rest. Yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. He's already in his rest. So if we're going to enter that rest, we're joining him in his rest. So he picks it up in verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, some of us, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them didn't go in because of their disbelief, the people in Numbers 14, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So what he's saying? God is inviting people to join his rest, which isn't having a Sabbath day or a Sunday as a day of rest. It's not going and living in the land of Palestine. It's entering the kingdom to come when we will cease from all our labours. You know, every job that you find tedious and difficult and hard, whether it's the job you do for money or it's just putting the rubbish out at home or mowing the lawn or cleaning up your Lego, every labour of struggling against sin and, and losing so often, that will all cease and will join God in his rest. I don't, know, I don't know how you picture that, lounging around a pool with God, drinking pina coladas. Remember Jesus? 
What did he say? He said, come to me all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's what he promised to those who would come to him and benefit from all that he did. And that's what God is holding out to us. His word, his promise of rest, he invites us to enter that rest. And so he says in verse 11, let's therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. That's sort of obvious, isn't it? If there's a rest still there available, the obvious thing is to, to, to strive for it, to enter that rest. Because it's what your heart desires, isn't it? It's what God offers. And he's done everything to make it possible. He's promised to all who trust him. And how do you strive to enter the rest? Well, chapter 3.14 tells us it's not about working really hard. Chapter 3.14, we've come to share in Christ and that rest if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Not letting our hearts go hard. Keep hearing God's promise of rest and hanging on to that promise no matter what happens. Just before the speaker moves on though, he, he has a little excursus in verses 12 and 13 about the word of God. He says it's active and, and piercing. It's, it's not dead. Uh, like Psalm 95 has been. That's really what he's talking about. It exposes the hardness of our hearts. Not always with pleasant results. Because it shows sometimes that what seem nice, upright citizens, pleasant people, are in fact rebellious against their creator. It exposes our hidden motives and thoughts. It might have done that for you today. I hope so, because that means it's not too late. I want to step back just a second and say, how's the writer using the Bible? How's he interpreting the Bible? Well, some things are pretty clear, I think. The Bible isn't simply human words. He says in chapter 4, God said. Or in chapter 3, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says and quotes the Bible. Not just said in the past, but is saying today, is addressing you and me, even in the present. So as we read the scriptures, we're hearing God speaking to us. But he also takes seriously the historical context. Psalm 95 is God speaking through David in about 1000 AD. It's spoken by a real human at a point in history. The historical context is crucial in his understanding and his application of it. That is, he's got to understand the Bible is both the word of God and the words of humans. Both at the same time, I need to take both seriously. And lastly, he understands it, what I call Christologically. The gospel we've heard is about Jesus. It's not about a promised land in Palestine. And that's the, the, the promise that we are to believe so that we enter God's rest. Jesus is the one who's provided that rest through his death and resurrection. We saw that last week. He rescues us from slavery in order to give us rest. And the book of Hebrews is a, a sermon, actually. He calls it, in chapter 13, a word of encouragement, which is a technical term for preaching in the synagogues of the day. But this is a, a sermon, and here's, here's a sermon within a sermon. And what is it? Well, he takes a passage of scripture and he expounds it. He explains it. That, that's his method. He explains its meaning. Even down to little details like God saying, it's my rest. He explains it in historical context. Who said it when? How does that affect how we understand it? And he applies it because it's God speaking to us in what we should do. And you see, you, that's our aim. We, we want to expound the scriptures. Sometimes it gets a little laborious. You read this chapter, and as, it was, as Josh read, you might have thought, boy, this is a bit convoluted. Well, you can cope, can't you? Keep listening. 
That's what we do most weeks at CU. We take a passage of scripture and expound it. Let me finish with the application. Get serious and keep listening. Today, God has been speaking to us in his word. Speaking to you. You've heard his message. If you were here last week, we heard the content of that message in in a fair bit of detail. The gospel about Jesus. God the Son becoming truly human to make atonement for our sins. To liberate us from captivity to the fear of death and give us a place in God's rest. This week we've heard that God's promise of rest still stands to you and to me. God has left the door open for the moment. Have you heard? But more importantly, what's happened when you've heard? Did you actually listen? So I don't think it's an accident of anatomy that God gave you two ears and one mouth. That should tell you something, shouldn't it? Christian life starts with hearing. Hearing God speak to us, his great promises. And it continues with hearing. Day after day, week after week, year after year. But one of the problems is we get bored with that. If you've been a Christian more than about a year or so, you know, maybe we open up Hebrews and you say, oh, come on, I've heard that before. Give me something new, please. Or you go to a church and the sermon starts and you think, no, that, that's familiar. I've heard this stuff before. And you just want to get Facebook out and have a look. No. Keep listening. The most dangerous thing that can happen to you is hardness of heart. It's more dangerous than lions. It's more dangerous than free climbing. Because God has spoken his word to us. Are you listening? Are you still listening? Thank you.